0: Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 159 of the show, and it's May the 10th, 2023, as I record this. Today, on this interview, we have Zach Pinsent, who is a tailor of bespoke period clothing for men and women, reproducing primarily Regency civilian and military costume. He's vocal on social and political issues whilst being immaculately dressed. And we talk an awful lot in this show about trousers and pockets and really what civilised people should be wearing. It's great fun. So, what have I been working on? Well... I have completed the Get Ready for Rapier series of seven very short videos, about five minutes each, covering ankle range of motion, knees, hips, hamstrings, shoulders, neck and wrists. I've also got the bonus videos shot and edited, so there's a 10-minute warm-up, a 20-minute warm-up and a 15-minute warm-down sequence. And these videos are only available for people who sign up through an email thing. The idea is you get an email every day for seven days, which gives you the next video. And you can sign up for this at guywindsor.net forward slash GRR, which stands for Get Ready and Rapier. I left out the F for the four, so it's just guywindsor.net grrr. So... It's lots of fun and also it should be extremely useful to you if you are thinking about taking up rapier or if you practice rapier or if indeed you just like having your body work properly. Also this week, the Duelist Companion 2nd Edition Progress Report. Well, I have completed my edits of the third layout round. Um, There's normally three or four rounds of layouts in any book like this. It's got about 400 pictures in it and getting them in the right place with the right text and everything and then making little text corrections that you don't see until it's all laid out all that sort of thing it is it is a process but it is coming along very nicely and it is coming along so nicely that you can in fact now pre-order the hardback in full glorious color from shop. so if you're interested in getting your hands on the Hardback, full colour, second edition of the Duelist Companion. You need to go to swordschool.shop and you can buy it there. Um, I'm expecting to be able to ship the, so the pre-ordered hardbacks, uh, I would hope, by the middle of June. I can't promise it because I'm dependent on my freelancers and you know they have lives and things and I never ever bug them to get stuff done by a particular time because... You know, they are highly skilled people who have lives and, you know, other things to do rather than just lay out my books or make my covers or whatever. But we are sufficiently far advanced along that I'm pretty confident that I can get the book out to you by the middle of June. I am going to read you the blurb. Um, Anyone who's written books or published books knows that actually writing the blurb is probably the hardest bit of the whole thing. Um, because you have to start saying all sorts of nice things about your book, and it feels really weird doing it. And this is why a lot of people actually hire professionals to write their blurbs, but I wrote this one all by myself. Well, not quite all by myself. I had some friends advise. but see what you think. The Dualist Companion is a must-read exploration of 17th century Italian rapier fencing, and a thorough interpretation of the style of legendary swordsman Rodolfo Capoferro, author of the most famous fencing book in history, Il Gran Simulacro, published in 1610. Through detailed illustrations and clear explanations, Guy Windsor, a leading expert in historical martial arts, takes you through preparation exercises before teaching you the guard positions, footwork, blade actions and techniques of Capoferro's style. From foundational footwork to advanced rapier and dagger play, this book covers everything you need to know to become skilled in the use of the rapier alone and with the dagger. This new edition has been updated with more than 400 photos, further cementing its place as a classic in the field of historical fencing. Whether you are an experienced historical fencer looking to expand your knowledge or a beginner looking to learn a new skill, The Duelist Companion is an essential resource. Now, wasn't that marvellous? Don't you want to just dash off to Shop and pre-order the hardback? Of course you do. Marvellous. I have also been working on the audiobook of the principles and practices of solo training. This was originally called The Windsor Method, with the principles of solo training as a subtitle, because two of my friends independently read early drafts, and they both said I should call it that. But here's the thing. Everyone who reads the book seems to love it. But absolutely nobody is buying it. So I need to rebrand it. Um, so I'm rebranding it as the principles and practices of solo training. It will have a new cover and everything else. In the course of recording the audio, I did make a few minor sort of text corrections, edits and whatnot, but it is fundamentally the same book. So if you have the original, The Windsor Method, you don't need to go and buy the principles and practices of solo training. It's basically the same book, just with a new name. And I was back in the studio last week to do the final few chapters and record corrections because, you know, pen drops, stomach gurgles, and other background interferences always make their way in. Um, and I am, I have done the post recording edits. So basically it's finished. Um, I'm just waiting on a new cover for it. And then I need to do the sort of updates to the interior files for the actual printed book and the ebook. And then we're going to get everything released. Oh, I would guess in a couple of weeks. It, well, it depends on the covers, and I don't want to rush my very, very excellent cover person. Um, so they'll be ready. It'll be ready when it's ready, but it should be fairly soon. What is not helping my productivity in this regard is uh, my Sword People platform because there's an awful lot of cool stuff going on it at the moment. Favorites from the last couple of weeks include. Uh, discussion of exactly how profile Fiori's Porta di Ferro Lamazana should be. So in other words, do you turn your shoulder forward and, and basically go side on like a rapier person or hips square on like you're trying to wheel on the opponent? Um, and, you know, a bit of sort of back and forth about what, what the picture looks like and what the implications of the position of the left hand, that sort of thing. Very neat, very nerdy, very geeky, and just exactly the kind of thing that us... Um, historical martial arts people seem to like. There's also a detailed article on resoling your barefoot style shoes. It's a weird thing. Barefoot style shoes are bizarrely expensive given how little of them they are. That it's crazy. So you can spend hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars, or whatever on these barefoot style shoes, and so they wear out because they have such thin soles. They wear out very quickly. But one excellent member of the forum has produced an entire article on how to take the old sole off put a new sole on and basically revive your rather expensive barefoot style shoot in the pub we've got a video taken on the deck of a indian navy ship of punjabi martial arts being demonstrated isn't that just the coolest thing you've ever heard um, photos from an excellent five kilometer fun run in armor, which had an actual dragon chasing them, um, put on by Suffolk Swords last Sunday. I took part as a civilian and I walked to it because I don't run because, you know, my knees don't particularly like it. But that was super fun. And there's pictures of that, pictures in the pub and also in the pub. It's funny. What is it about sword people? Like, every, all the best stuff happens in the pub. This is true in, on the internet and it's also true in real life. So we have photographic evidence that in Singapore, which is a highly developed country, they actually employ Anduril, Flame of the West, for people who are not Tolkien fans. I struggle to um, I struggle to get my head around the idea that people who listen to this podcast might not be into Tolkien. I'm sure there are some. Um, so yes, one of their swords from uh, Lord of the Rings. Singapore actually uses Anduril, Flame of the West, in a military context. If you don't believe me, you're just going to have to go to swordpeople.com and join us and go to the pub and you'll see it for your own very self. So now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. <laughs> I'm here today with Zach Pinsent, who is a tailor of bespoke period clothing for men and women, reproducing primarily Regency, civilian and military costume. He's vocal on social and political issues while being immaculately dressed. So, Zach, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's lovely to actually get to talk to you in person. We've interacted a little bit on Twitter, I think it was. Um, and can I just say for the for the listeners that I am in a school t-shirt and a scruffy fleece and zach is immaculately turned out with a yellow waistcoat and a cravat and that kind of collar that goes up past your jawline
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> looking magnificent sir all right so oh, thank you so much um just to orient everybody whereabouts in the world are you
1: uh, i'm in brighton on the uh south coast of england um about 50 miles south of London. Um, and during the Napoleonic period, a bit too close to the French. Right.
0: Um, <laughs> yes, we've we, we got to steer clear of those French. Um, and, of course, in like the 18th and 19th centuries, Brighton was a place where posh people from London came down to stroll upon the promenade looking fabulous.
1: Exactly. Um, it was the... Um, It became the fashionable place to be sort of from the 1780s when the Prince Regent came down as a young man and then he started working on um, Marine House, which then turned into the Brighton Pavilion. And it basically became where the royal court was for for many years. And it became the place to be. Hence why Lydia Bennett in Pride and Prejudice says, I want to go to Brighton because this Uh is where all the military officers were because just um, just near me we have Hove, what is now called Hove Park, but originally was one of the largest military parade grounds, where also, coincidentally, um, the largest court-martial took place on UK soil. Really? What yeah. was that about? I just soldiers behaving badly, I think. <laughs> um, but, but it makes perfect sense because you're near the coast, you're in an area where you, where you can get to Portsmouth very easily um, and for moving out for manoeuvres... But also you're right near to Brighton, where the Prince Regent, the King, was for the longest period of time. And you're right out of the centre of London, which, to be honest, is a prime place for mischief for your soldiers, people deserting. um, But also a hub of spies and villainy, um, really, because London was this, um, as much as it saw itself as secure from uh, the French and their influence and all that jazz, yeah, it was, it was about as secure as a sieve uh, yes. in terms of um, information. So having them down here in what effectively was genteel countryside um, originally next to a fishing village, which was becoming a very fashionable town, um, seemed to be a good place to keep them.
0: Right. OK. Um, so were you did you move there deliberately? It does sound like an ex- a perfect milieu for you personally.
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, born and bred here. Uh, right. So, so born in the local hospital. Um, and thought, oh, not going anywhere. That's good. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I mean, it's the joy of being incredibly close to London without having to be in London. Right. Um, and, and in fact, it's sometimes quicker to get from Brighton to the centre of London than it can be from parts of London to get into the centre of London.
0: Right. I have the same thing living in Ipswich. Um, we have like a one-hour train journey from... Ipswich to Liverpool Street, and there are people who live technically in London that it would take them longer to get there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Okay. So what actually sparked your interest in period clothing and recreating it?
1: Well, I think a really good way of summing it up is that every child loves dressing up. And my parents has never told me to stop, and the enthusiasm really didn't go anywhere um and so I that's that's very good. similar
0: to like every kid loves playing with swords but most kids stop playing with swords at some point um, exactly and and i'm here to kind of get them back into it
1: <laughs> yeah exactly you don't know, I've even got a left right the thing that i picked up on a school field trip it's a fantasy sword but it was like i want to come back with a sword not a pencil sharpener right um, <laughs> um so i started off with that sort of thing, wanted to dress up, and then every own clothes day, every opportunity, I'd always wear some form of eccentric outfit or something, you know, invariably some form of costume, because it was just more fun. I was a child. Um, and then growing up, you tried to sort of, you know, um, you tried to become a bit more, um, you tried to fit in a little bit more. And mm. then I was thinking, well, this still isn't anything I quite enjoy. And then I decided to dress vintage and then the vintage turned into repairing the vintage and then recreating bits of vintage and then realizing, oh, I can make anything. And then those small, tiny steps going on to create more and more things. And now, via various uh, peaks and drops, it's now kind of what I do.
0: So uh, I've seen images of you wearing a small sword. And if I recall rightly, my, our very first Twitter interaction was... I saw you dressed fabulously with an enormous hat and carrying this beautiful sword. And I was like, that's a nice sword. Can you actually use it? And you said, why actually? Yes, I can. So, um, could you tell us something about your historical martial arts practice?
1: Well, um, it, it became, this is going to sound really Poncey. Um, but, but my school suddenly decided, oh, let's introduce fencing as a thing. And <laughs> okay. so, so we started to do um, a bit of fencing and a, an a, um, external teacher sort of came in and we did a little bit there. Um, and that was fun, but it was. Uh, and then there wasn't really enough people to carry it on. So then I actually took some fencing lessons oh. um, outside school because it was that thing of, you know, I think my parents were just enthused that I actually liked some form of sport. Um right. And I found it great. It was great fun, but, um, I only did it for, I think, about a year, uh, because then the joys of GTSEs and exams came along. But, but you don't really lose bits of it and it teaches you stance and things like that. As well as, interestingly, um, a lot of the, um, sword positions and stances and things are, mirrored in many ways in dance and in court etiquette so it's interesting sort of how these sort of steps all stay together um i'm in no way know really what i'm doing but i can sort of do a little bit more than i think the average person would be able to
0: okay so you don't actually practice for example uh a late 18th century small sort system as written down by angelo for example
1: uh no but i have gone to a few um uh classes uh, and things when they've been going on. I've been to a couple uh, at the Jane Austen Festival when they've held those, because um, right. a friend of mine, um, whose name actually escapes me, um, brought along a whole bag of uh practice small swords and everything and actually teaches it. Um, oh, okay. So, so that was fascinating. Um Really, really cool. And then he stopped because he had a leg injury. Um, so it was like, oh, bugger. Um, <laughs> so, and then I really never just picked it up, although it would be quite fun to. And then I went to... Oh. Uh, Zach, you've got to, yeah. Oh no, I mean, I've got you, to. You, you, you,
0: you, like, <laughs> like, I mean, just just for example, like the the salute at the beginning of Angelo's. Book, oh yes, uh, School yes. of fencing. The way the way it places you in that position for which the mm. clothes
1: are built. Exactly, exactly. No, 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 no. So, so, so I know the salute and everything. Um, that that first initial one, and then it also plays into. Um, Napoleonic military salute but it, right. it, it it's interesting how it works then with court salutes and dress and it's it's this thing of none of it was ever working in isolation um, yeah. these these sword practices were for like the genteel, the upper classes type thing um, it, it, it is who these manuals are made for um, otherwise um, a lot of people um, who were masters in skills of their craft um, were you know um, of generally sort of social different classes and things like that, or they were sword teachers. Um, I I assume, although if I've got that yeah. wrong.
0: And well, okay. Basically, uh, in the military, the mm. person teaching officers how to use their sabers was usually a non commissioned officer, like a sergeant. Yep. Right, and fencing teachers were invariably of lower social status than the people they taught. Yes. Right um but for example domenico angelo like the most famous fencing master in london in the late 17th century yeah he was also a riding master and i believe he also taught dance and he taught at eton college amongst other places um so he was you know and he dedicated his book to i think it was the duke of gloucester some some first or second in line to the throne anyway. And of course, that's only done with the permission of the person you're dedicating it to, mm. right? And so these people did actually train with him. He taught, like, the very upper echelons of the nobility, right? But he was not himself noble.
1: Mm. so no,
0: of course. So, yeah, people like me are effectively tradesmen.
1: Yes. <laughs> but and, but, and- but, 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 but it's that fine... Fine line where where you're sort of allowed into these circles to an extent, but never yeah. fully allowed in. Um, and but but to be honest, you might not want to be. Um, right. And there's also that thing of where a noble and everything they can't have a profession, they can't have a job. Um, yeah. So 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 this is a fun sort of escape for them to be able to sort of um, pretend to have a profession.
0: Sure, and and to think like how, for example, Queen Elizabeth would have interacted with her horse trainer,
1: mm.
0: right? That is, it's not. You know, he he's effectively an employee. Yeah. But but he's in, employed because he so is much one of the best in the world that... at what he does. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Because because uh, a good friend of mine um, is actually the riding master for the um, Dutch royal household. Oh really? Really okay. fascinating, um, and can do side saddle and everything like that. It's amazing. Um, really, really, really fascinating stuff. And then to see him. Riding around with the reenactor playing the Prince of Orange um, at the Battle of Waterloo uh, bicentennial in 2015, it was like there are people on a horse, and then yes. there are people on a horse. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. it, it, it was very much night and day seeing seeing the manoeuvres um, he he could do and work about with pretty much a horse he'd met that day, effectively. Yeah. Um, It was astonishing, especially when you've got cannon going off and then you've got these, um, you know, huge amounts of troops suddenly popping up, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and see how he handled the horse and everything. And then um, and then one, it was prearranged, jumping over a cannon. And and, and it was it was amazing. Um,
0: (laughs) Were were you there there as a reenactor or as a spectator?
1: Oh, yes. No, I was there as a reenactor. I was a bugler uh, in the third 95th Rifles quite okay exciting. so there i was um running around in green wool um tooting my horn um. immaculately tailored green wool I exactly hope. it was it was <laughs> still is it's in the cupboard um. uh, okay so do you do you reenactment regularly um so the military side has sort of fallen off um a little bit um as i've just sort of had to focus on life um but but i will return to it but i do a lot more civilian events and reenactments so for example balls and things um i mean i've got some events coming up um next month but actually i've got some events i'm doing myself oh look at this segue um so (laughs) (laughs) by
0: by, by all means okay let's let me give you the opportunity to plug so tell me zach do you organise any events yourself? And are there any that my listeners might think they ought to come to?
1: Well, uh, there's, there's, um, there's two. So there's sort of one I'm doing in May, uh, it, along with the coronation. It's really only for sort of local people, because we're not doing a big presentation for the public. Um, but we are going in full Regency court dress uh, through the pavilion gardens, then processing through the pavilion. And then we're having a small dinner. So it's more a private thing with a public facing aspect. But it's sort of a, a soft launch of a, of a concept for me, um, because in January 2024, um, I am holding a grand ball, uh, a grand regency ball at the Brighton Pavilion. So it's going to be a dinner wow. and ball, and then this... Yeah, no, it's going to be spectacular. Um, it's, it's a massive undertaking. Um, but the great thing is, is that that's when the London season was. Right. Um, well, the social season... It was in these dark periods where it was easier to have these ballrooms filled with people. Um, so imagine doing that in summer. Everyone would boil. Um, yeah. So it never really worked. Uh, so the good thing about this is that it's something to look forward to in January. Because January is so depressing uh, that it's a fun thing to be doing and looking forward to. And it gives people enough time to plan and hopefully... Well, I mean, people have already actually bought flights and hotels, even though I haven't released the tickets yet. And <laughs> okay. I'm like, okay, you're keen. Ten out of ten. Um, and it is interesting um, because things are things are going to be a bit cheaper then and everything. But um, it's limited ticket supplies only. Um, the tickets will go out um, in sort of May slash June, and I might, because of the interest, put on a, put on another another ball, um, maybe the day before or the day after. But we'll see how that goes. But yes, and hopefully, if this one goes particularly well, I'll be able to make it a regular thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sort of an annual, at least.
0: And I imagine you want everybody coming in proper clothing. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Okay, Okay. so how are you going to make sure that somebody doesn't buy a ticket and show up wearing, I don't know, a pair of regular trousers that they've hacked off at the knee and stuck an elastic band round to make it look like breeches?
1: Well... They've tried, and that's the important thing. We all start somewhere. My first right. outfit was a polyester nightmare; um, <laughs> none of it fitted properly, um, and all of this. So it's like, hey, they're they're dipping their toes. They're then saying, okay. do I like this? Do I then invest in it?
0: So, so you're all right with with beginners in the dressing up in Regency clothing side of things, so long as they make a good
1: faith effort, no one's going to sneer at them Totally, totally, so okay. so I'm going to put in the thing that um, you know, Regency Dress Encouraged and I'm building a whole Pinterest board so that people mm-hmm. can see what the vibe is for the pavilion, mm-hmm. um, one so they can see the interiors, because after all people are going to be spending a fair amount on these tickets um, and I don't, you know, and I think they owe it to themselves and to the building, the only royal palace in public hands uh, to to sort of step up their game, do their best. Um, so I've sort of said, well, okay, people that don't have the stuff, you have got 10 months, and there are, and here's resources to places you can rent or, or buy cheap from and things like that. But also, um, you can maybe turn up in black tie if you don't have anything, preferably white tie, so then you've still got the tailcoat side of things. But to be honest, if you turn up without making an effort, you would feel very silly. See that's the funny thing. Yeah, and,
0: the one and that I don't the think anyone feels odd. Yeah, I don't think anyone is likely to not make an effort. But um, yeah. one thing that I have found in some reenactment circles to be very off-putting is mm. the clothing Nazis who who are like they'll have a look at they'll have a look at was was that cuff
1: machine stitched? Oh, I do know those sorts yeah. of people, and people think I'm like that, and I'm like, no, um, you know it. If I'm doing a, um, a very professional reenactment for the public sort of thing in its particular year and it's a historical thing and it's about education or about presentation, then that has to be correct. You can't fumble that and say to the public, this is what they wore, because that would just be a lie. So that sort of yeah. thing has to be held to a very high standard. Otherwise, when it's a social event that you can buy a ticket to and you just want to go to the first thing and all of that, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. As long as you're making the best effort you can. And after all, people will maybe put an event together um, sorry, put an outfit together and then think, oh, maybe I want to change this or change that. Especially as sort of in the Facebook group or things like that. People are going to be posting what they'll be wearing and then you'll have people kind of slightly worried, which I kind of want to dispel because for a woman you can come along in um, a plain white dress, uh Regency dress with then some coloured um, accessories and you're done. The only requirement really is that fill your hair with a tiara and feathers and you're fine. (laughs) And gentlemen, keep your jackets on at all times. My worst, my my big bugbear that you see at these reenactments that happen is as soon as it's like vaguely mild, we go, oh, I'll take my jacket off. It's like, men, keep your jackets on. You're in a royal palace for goodness sake. And after all, (laughs) it's not just for you, it's for everyone else that's there. Because for some people, I mean, there's a couple who have um, bought a plane ticket From Chile and they've bought um hotel rooms already um in Brighton and I'm like, God, I hope they get a ticket. But 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 I think for them I'm actually gonna potentially keep a keep a couple of tickets back for them to make sure they can actually come. I think you Um, probably should, yes. Yeah, yeah, but it's that notion of wow, okay, that's that's um you know, um some sort of proof of concept. So it's not an event just for you because people are saying, oh, we go to events all the time. Didn't feel like dressing up to this one. And I do see that happen at other events in the UK when there's so many of them Mm. and the price point of them is sort of 30 to sort of 60 pounds or something. People go, oh, well, I've been to another one. Didn't feel like dressing up really, really for this one. And I'm going, mine is going to be a big event. I mean, look at the setting. Yes. Um, And I am going to have a thing on the invitation saying, um, Gentlemen officers, uh, gentlemen officers can have swords and canes, but they can't be worn in the ballroom. Um, and then I think at the evening there's going to be a lovely line uh, of swords all propped up along one one wall ah, in the dressing okay. room. So that's going to look quite fun and interesting. Um, and I'm going to get little um, little tags so that people can write their name on them, so they, so, so they don't, you don't inadvertently take someone else's sword. Um, that which, could be awkward. It would. It would. Um, but but it also reminds me of, and I was thinking, or oh, do I tell them not to bring them at all? As Handel asked patrons um, when coming to his messiah um, in, gosh, 17-something or other, can't remember, uh, at the Coram Hospital. Um, because of the popularity of it, he said, gentlemen, um, he said uh, on the thing, gentlemen uh, to attend without swords. So that right. more people could sit on these benches. Um yeah. And I think that's quite funny. And also, there's,
0: there's less likelihood of a murder.
1: Yes. Yes, this is true. This is true. Um, when, when, when in any social situation or any society, you take out particular types of offensive weapons, you'll find that, oh, the chances for things involving those weapons oh, um, could go down. down. Yeah, which in no way translates to anything modern in any modern situation or society <laughs> at all. No, at all. No. No. <laughs> Okay. Now, okay.
0: The one, the one item of clothing where, well, I'm, I'm quite fussy about my shoes because obviously bad sure. shoes, bad day. Um, but I'm also an inveterate wearer of hats, not Lovely. indoors, obviously. And I'm indoors at the moment, so I'm just wearing headphones, but I mean, modern hats like this Australian mm. Acubra, um, which I, I tend to go for the fedora sort of thing. So, nice. I do have to ask because you have, a simply astonishing selection of hats.
1: I where do you get a your hats selection from? Of hats. Well, where did you um, get them from? A few places. So, so some are vintage ones that I've reblocked or redone. Some are ones I've just sort of come across in like I've been to a market um, at a reenactment thing, and there's been one there, and they've been like, oh yeah, we're selling a few of these. Not sure where they got them. All their ex films sometimes. Um, I do have a hatter lady called Jane Walton. She's made me a couple of hats. But now, rather excitingly, um, I've got a, I've got a brand new hat, which is um, which I'm working with on research with a French hatter. Well, she lives in Paris. She's American, um, but but she makes the most lovely hats. So this is one I'll be de- debuting in May. But um, we're using research from the um, Swedish Military Museum um, because they have the plans for making different types of hats. Really? So, yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, we're, we're sort of looking at that because they've got the little inch markers and everything. So we're realizing, mm. okay, we need to make it this large. You need to stretch out this bit here. Um, she's sourcing all the ostrich plume and everything. What and kind going of pack? Oh, it's going to be a, um, modern major general. No, uh, so <laughs> a, um, a, so, so here's the problem. I'm making a uniform that's a regulation, non-regulation uniform. Where there are regulations to it, but it's also vaguely unregulated, um, which okay. isn't helpful. And the hats keep changing because of that. So I'm following a portrait of George III, uh, where he wears his general's uniform. So it's a bicorn with tricorn tendencies. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but, but often known as a um, uh, court chapeau. Um, or something like that, basically where you have the bicorn style with a slight kick at the front. Um, you can wear it bang on sideways, which it wasn't really worn that often. Um, hat, just you...
0: just for just for the non-specialists. A bicorn oh, is yes. basically a hat with two points and it's like an enormous semicircle sitting on your head.
1: Kind of. Yeah. Right. Very much so. Um, and and then as as the time period goes on, you see it doing this sort of slide around the head. Until you get to the very sort of hornblower type thing, where it's bang in front of the face. Although yeah. it was never really worn bang in front of the face, there was always a tilt and a curve and a um, slight, um, you know, rakishness over the left, um, over the left eye, because obviously you don't want it getting in the way of when you're doing saluting and everything. So, right. so the cock of the hat depends on regiment tradition. And many other fancy things. And they always say, oh, it's down to saluting. And it's like, well, or it could just be down to the fact that your colonel in chief wears his like that. So everyone just started wearing theirs like that.
0: Yeah. And also, if you want to shoot a musket, um, you need, if you have a bike one straight down the line, it's going to be banging onto the onto the gun. You need it turned off to the side.
1: Exactly. So Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, the, these sorts of hats, um, specifically worn by officers and things, it's a it's a thing of well, how often were they actually firing muskets um, and actually doing soldiering?
0: Well, the thing is, though, well, more often than we might still think, worn think. Them, and also they'd have worn them hunting.
1: Um. Yeah. Um. Yes and no. Um. So. Oh. So interestingly, um, you go from the. I'm calling it a tricorn, but it's it's only ever been called a tricorn in the late 19th century. Before then, it's just a cocked hat. Right. So um, you would have worn a cocked hat and then you went right from that to pretty much wearing forms of top hats. So I haven't seen any evidence um, or any depictions of someone wearing a sort of full bicorn um, hunting or anything like that. Really? It, it didn't enter fashion like that, no. Um, no, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean hunting,
0: yeah. like um, hunting after, uh, with fox and hounds oh, i mean right. i mean like shooting birds with a like yeah well that you, you, that's you, that sort of thing the, the gentry've been doing since forever i mean you just go to the wise oh, collection and have oh, exactly the guns. oh yeah no that right.
1: that they're, they're, they're all over the place and they seem to be doing the same thing where um a bicorn when it comes into being becomes a full dress ceremonial thing um, oh, okay. rather than a cocked hat you have ceremonial versions but but it's the everyday type headwear and then that turns into smaller and smaller cocked hats. And then mm-hmm. it effectively turns into round hats uh, in the 1780s. And then those then are morphing slightly into these smaller types of top hats. And then they just become top hats from then on. Um, so there isn't really a point where you see um, bicorns being worn, except uh, there's a really fascinating painting uh, in um, Württemberg, uh in Germany, where they're all in full court dress because they did this thing where they gathered all the animals and they let them loose in a square, effectively, and they all shot them at that point because <laughs> because that's real sportsmanship. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, so they're all wearing sort of bits of court dress or fancy attire, and I think in some of that they are wearing sort of bicorn-type things, but it's not really running about hunting as you'd expect or stalking okay. prey and things like that. Um, mainly because that would make it an incredibly impractical hat. Um, but but you sort of want a, a a lower thing. It it's interesting, and I'd be really interested to be uh, to to find things. I I think it's that funny thing of if you brought someone shooting who had maybe never done it, and they turned up in a bicorn, you could be like, "What the hell are you doing?" You know, it's <laughs> like someone you know, it's be like someone coming along in the three you know in the three piece tweeds and everything. Um, but then with like town brogues on or something, that sort of thing of why are you wearing those <laughs> sort sure. sort of thing, I suppose. Um see, I make it sound like I know lots about modern hunting. I've got no idea. <laughs> you know talk about historical hunting. Not a problem. Um but um yes, no, it's interesting. Um I uh, the the bicorn it seems to be the one that sort of skips um the pleasure side of um of dress. Uh you go from tight small cocktats so Than um, forms of top hat, uh, simply right. out of practicality.
0: Okay. Um, now, I should perhaps mention that in the 1920s and 30s, my grandmother, my father's mother, was a milliner, worked for a milliner's, um, who made hats for the lady who became Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. Oh, wow. So I have hat making in my blood, although
1: I've never made a hat. Oh. You should. <laughs> well, well, if I you should. French fr- well, my. Well, in fact, my French friend, who isn't French, who's American, who lives in France, <laughs> the milliner, um, she does do classes, um, does like she? beginner class and stuff like. That. Yeah, yeah. So I could I could go to Paris
0: and make a hat. You could, you could. That's yeah. a bloody good idea.
1: I will do that. It is. Yeah, <laughs> do it, do it. You know, I, I'm, I, I mean, it's the home of millinery, really. Um, so it, it's quite a fun thing to do, and I think. Um, other, other sort of um, places like, I think, um, you know, Lock and & Co and things, I think they do, like, little yeah. classes, like decorating hats and stuff. But mm. it seems to be a different way of doing doing things. But um, I think going to, like, a small class run by a cool professional is always quite fun. I mean, and, and it's, I've done it's that the best with way. Things as well. Yeah, it's the best way yeah. to learn anything.
0: So, exactly. I mean, have you done that with
1: tailoring? Uh, no, I am... Um, I'm I'm working out how to do it. Because I'm self-taught, I don't know what I don't know, and I'm also potentially bad at teaching. But I would like to do um, sewing classes of sorts. So mm-hmm. things where I can help people pattern perhaps a Spencer or a waistcoat, or sort of let's go and make a waistcoat over like a week period or something like that. Um, but then also doing sort of sampler classes of, hello, this is how you hold a needle. So basically people that um, might need teaching from how to hold needles, people who've done a bit of sewing, and doing samplers where you just teach historic um, sewing techniques. So, for example, this is how this particular stitch is done, this is why this is done, and learning about the layering that's involved. Those are things I really like to do. Has
0: sewing changed much in the last couple hundred years?
1: Um, Yes and no. Uh, So, so mainly because we do a lot of by machine now, the way we would mm-hmm. sew things together has changed drastically. I mean, on the row and things like that, they use still a lot of it by hand, um, but but there's techniques and things that they use that I wouldn't use, um, and vice versa. Um, so, if you do a lot of modern tailoring, you've actually got a lot of unlearning to do, mainly about drape. Um, okay, that, what I mean, is drape
0: for the non, non-specialists
1: in the audience? Drape is effectively how the clothing... Hangs off your body, mm-hmm. um, and how it works and where the angles of point are, um, and things like that. Basically, the back balance is key, effectively, and that's how the front and back marry together on your body. Okay. And the balance of drape and back balance is quite different. Um, you know, y- you can have it perfectly balanced and look perfectly balanced, but if the drape is off, it means that the front of your coat isn't going to work how it would have in the past, it's more a modern interpretation of how you think it should be. Um, rather than I'm looking at how period clothes drape and how they work um, and you sort of build that into crafting for a modern body. I mean, after all, you're not using shoulder pads and things, which we're so used to using. And, when, and ah, here's the thing. Look at uh-huh. period dramas and look for the men's shoulder pads. Like, why? 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 It's because they're <laughs> using a modern blazer block to and just adding other shapes to the bottom of to make it more like a tailcoat or something. Ah. And then they're just doing, you know, because it's a construction thing. Oh, the people in the shop, they know how to do this. And the sleeves. So there's nothing more ugly than a modern sleeve. Um, they, they they just don't look nice. They're not very elegant. Um, now, it's not to say that there aren't some lovely suits with some lovely sleeves. Sure. But as as a concept, the men's modern suit sleeve is a bit Meh. It's, yeah. um, yes and, and you can't
0: you can't move your, your arms properly while wearing it
1: exactly well, well that's because of the very low arm size so so once you have nice an what isn't what,
0: what is an, an arm Uh
1: an arm sigh and and good luck on the spelling because I always get it wrong um okay. an, an arm sigh is basically the armhole um right. and and the so so for example here I am holding up my hands um so we kind of assume that it's a circle but no actually it's more of a um more of an oval uh, like a non oval where your yeah, yeah uh, where your arm is so basically what you want to do is you want to bring the armhole as close to that point as possible where it will fit snugly all the way around, because actually it's the same thing we have with sportswear if it fits tighter you have a much ra- if it fits closer you have a much wider range of movement if you have right. the armhole down there, which you do with modern suits, because the way you can do that is you can mass produce it for more people and guarantee a better shoulder fit. Um, it means that once you lift your arm, the whole suit comes with you right. rather than in no period clothing, because it's made for you with a nice high arm cipher, full movement. You can lift your arms and do court dance, ballet, or even sword practice. And the coat stays exactly where it is. Fred Astaire right. had the same thing done with his suits. Uh, he had a very high arm size so once you see him dancing around he's wearing i think he had some done at anderson and shepherd but um they they gave him a very high arm size from his request um and he can move his arms about and everything and it stays where it is um it's a bugbear i have with conductors um so if Ross, you see cuz the back of their jackets keep flapping up and down exactly i'm just like you aren't a bat um <laughs> but- but, but you look, and, and, and there's also a thing that you can do, um, it, it, it's in a tailor's manual, and it's literally called the conductor's sleeve. It's cut slightly differently for your arms being pretty much constantly raised. Um, and, and then when it's down, it creates a little bit of creasing, but you're gonna have your arms up more than you're gonna have them down. Um, and, and I think that's really fascinating. And with that, it means you can, you, you look at any, period representation of a conductor, even in the 19th century, uh, you know, the, the late nineteenth century, where there's an orchestra and there's someone conducting, the coat is down, the arms yep. are up. Now yep. it's a case of let me bring my entire jacket with you um and distract <laughs> you. Um
0: yes, it is it's crazy to see those those probably foam uh shoulder pads yep. kind of up, up around their ears up when down. they're conducting. It's like, exactly. because like when I mean most of what I Most of the tailoring I've really cared about has been for armor and the clothes that were worn under armor, Mm. right? Where movement is absolutely critical, right? And well-fitted armor, you can absolutely put your hands together above your head, and there's a lot of clattering and battering, but you don't you don't end up having to haul the in the entire cuirass up your chest to bring your arms up, unless the armor is badly made or your jacket isn't fitted properly. And my, my arming jacket, it, it fits like Catwoman's catsuit.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. I mean, that um, having something well-fitted can totally change how you feel. Um, it, it, it can... Well, people talk about um, comfort in these sorts of clothes. I'm thinking, well, it's perfectly comfortable. If something's made for you, it's incredibly comfortable. Um, but also, if something's made for you, you can feel confident in it, and confidence is part of something being comfortable.
0: Very true. Um, okay. So um, I do have to ask because I, the biggest difficulty I have in my wardrobe is trousers because mm. I simply cannot abide a waistband around my hips as modern yes. trouser makers like to do. It's just, it is, it drives me absolutely fucking insane. Oh, right? me so too. What, I, what I end up having to do is I get. The highest waisted trouser i can get and then i get it like two sizes bigger than it should be so i can have the waistband up around my waist without it crushing my nuts so yeah okay How, how does one build a pair of trousers
1: so um there's just different styles um and the high waist is not really in well it's actually coming back into fashion but in fashion it's coming back into fashion um, I think you'll take some time before okay. it gets to the high street suit retailers. But you can go to um, uh, a, a modern tailor, um, but the, the problem with going to modern tailors and fashion houses and things like that, they have a particular way that they would like to do things for you. But if they're yeah. bespoke tailors and you say, hi, I want a really nice high waist, they should be able to do that for you. Um, but there are also suppliers um, out there um, who do sort of... Um, Historical trousers and clothing, that so, so really So, a really good one, um, owned by a friend of mine who does film and TV and has done for the past, ooh, 20, 25 years. So, basically, any period drama that you've seen in the past, you know, what, 20, 25 years, 30 years, um, all the shirts have been them, pretty much. Uh, and that is a place now called Darcy Clothing, uh, owned by a friend of mine called Catherine. Darcy, Darcy Clothing. Lovely lady. Uh, Darcy Clothing, yeah. Um, and they do nice high waisted Victorian trousers. Um, and, and to, to be, be honest, nice. okay, they're cheap for what they are. Yeah, cheap for what they are. Um, I mean, because they're designed to be sort of mass produced and things. I mean, they're not as cheap as a pair of trousers you might just buy and buy on the high street. But then again, you're looking for something specialist. Um, and then there is also the option y- yeah. of going to a tailor and having something made.
0: Yeah, I have, I have done that and I have trousers that I've, I've had for the last, I don't know, 17, 18 years, which they, they will do the job. They're, properly wasted or whatever but you know trousers don't last forever and they're starting to get a bit creaky so Mm. (laughs) um okay so darcy darcy clothing i will definitely look them up um now no do your your you the kind of trousers that you make sort of regency style that is a completely different thing to the victorian trouser
1: totally uh so it Interestingly, trousers um, have been around since well, forever. It's basically cloth that covers yeah. the whole leg. But in terms of fashion, yeah. um, they come in and out, and you see them um, sometimes with labourers and things like that in the 18th century, um, or as a form of, um, I suppose, sailor slops or things like that, or people wearing stuff in the Mediterranean. the The breeches are the um, are the go-to bit of legwear, really. So they're like trousers that are cut off at the knee. Um, and are very tight-fitting, and then you wear stockings with them. Now, when you think, oh, isn't that impractical? Well, not really, because if you're walking about, there's mud around the streets and whatnot, rather than having to change your whole bit of legwear for another pair of trousers because you've got mud on it and everything, you can just change a stocking. Yeah. And stockings are fairly cheap. So it, it adds another layer of usability into something. But the whole notion of period wear, because you can move in it better, as well as fashion, and it saves on cloth... Um, is cutting things tighter, well, form-fitting, and it's just much nicer. That's a bugbear when I get to see historical dramas and things where the breeches and pantaloons and even the trousers aren't fitted and tight enough, really. Okay.
0: Um, also, the breeches thing, like fencers have been wearing breeches since the nineteenth century or before, yeah. um, and like serious uh, hill walkers and so rambler's in the UK. Will wear breeches because mm. you get better freedom of, m- of movement because the trouser never catches on the knee you know how if, if you squat down in regular trousers you have to kind of hitch up the front of the trousers to squat exactly. so it doesn't catch on the knee you don't have to do that in a pair of breeches mm-hmm.
1: so i will extol the virtues of breeches to the cows come home um but, because they really are the thing of why did these go out of fashion um well various reasons but um it's it is interesting um, that that we don't wear one. You know, it, it's been in fashion longer than it's ever been out of fashion, right?
0: And are you, you're from, you must be familiar with pluderhosen. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, have you never been tempted to go like a century earlier and get full kind of pluderhosen up?
1: It's it's tempting, and it's something that I'm kind of working with at the moment because I do have an outfit in mind from um, uh, from the 1600s. That I have some lovely silk for. So, so, so there's this one in the V&A um, where the outfit is copied very well, and I've got an original pattern for it that they did their first things at with the School of Historical Dress. So that's quite exciting. Um, but yes, no, I will be at some point be making a um, sort of 17th century ensemble. But, but as and when, really, it's it's it it, it will happen. Okay. <laughs>
0: I mean, how could it not?
1: I mean. They're just
0: fabulous. Well, exactly. You know, I am, I am, I am getting, I'm, I'm gently edging myself towards just wearing Plutohosen all the time. The, the trick is just mm. finding Plutohosen yeah. which have adequate pockets. So how do you solve the pocket problem? Because I don't there carry a handbag and, you know, that, that, I, I basically, that, that, in my trousers, I have wallet, phone, keys, sometimes a notebook, pens. I mean, that's why I, Pretty much all of my trousers have side pockets on
1: the thighs Oh exactly So um, there is no pocket problem Historically when you look at men's legwear It's full of pockets Even Plunderhosen Plunderhosen had massive pockets um, when, when, when you look at um, originals And things like that um, So I've got a pair of breeches in my collection Which has two fob pockets um, Well two frog pockets A fob pocket um, A side pocket in one side, and then another side pocket in the other, and then a further side pocket around the other side. But then also in those pockets, the pockets are divided up. Um, So they've got sections in those pockets. So there's effectively like six pockets in these pairs of breeches, and one is very long and skinny. And I'm like, well, that's the perfect sort of length for um, either a pen case or a glasses case or something. So that pocket had a use, and I think that's always quite interesting.
0: Yeah, and, and the great thing about getting clothes tailored is I can get the pockets exactly the way I want them. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so, so back back when I used to fly wearing a suit, like the the jacket, the inside left pocket of the jacket was sized to exactly fit a boarding pass, for instance. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's just, it's just a much 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 better way to live. Now, um, the frog pocket. What is a frog pocket?
1: So the frog pocket is basically the um, pockets you have on breeches, for example. Um, they go from the flap and they go up to the side and they actually button on the side and they form like a little um, point uh, situation. Now that then turns into, because you've got to remember that that comes into being when the um waistband of the britches are quite low in the 18th century. So you can't really access the side in the same way because of the waistcoat and everything, so it's easy to access it sort of from the top side, if that makes sense. Um but still keeping the integrity of the britches together. But then you have some side ones coming in. Um but basically it's a form of pocket. In fact, um I'll I'll be doing um As part of this project I've got coming up in May, I'm making a brand new outfit, so I'm going to be making all the small clothes, and in that I'll be doing um, the construction uh, of britches, a waistcoat and a coat, um, and sort of putting that up on YouTube, So because it's interesting, and people don't know these things because it's not taught, and why would you happen to know the minutiae of the construction of 18th century britches? So it's quite fun to be able to make something (laughs) and show people and answer all these interesting questions.
0: Excellent. Um, okay, and when that comes out, send us the links and we'll stick them in the show notes. Uh,
1: so, so seeing as you um, are a big fan, obviously um, of, of of historical fencing and everything, um, from my perspective, do you have many um, originals?
0: Uh, I only have a couple. Um, I have a eighteen fifteen saber. I, I'll, I'll grab them because for me. Um, swords of things to be used not hung on the wall yes. so I have this Syrup Hilted um, it's actually a Pioneer's sword from 1815 but it handles a lot like a smaller um, 1795 pattern like, sorry 1796 pattern like Cavalry Sabre I do have a 1796 pattern like Cavalry Sabre uh, with its scabbard but it is in really poor condition um, oh bless them yeah, somebody probably left it in the rain or something Many, many, many years ago, and it's 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 basically black. Oh. Um, but it actually handles okay. Um,
1: yes. but I don't like
0: to use it too much because you're gonna the, it's gonna destroy the, the handle. But but the, the this weight one, of the
1: blade and things are fantastic, and they're so oh. springy and light. There 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 really isn't any any modern ones I've come across that've been able to sort of reproduce that for well yeah they, for anything the modern, uh, the totally modern reproductions
0: economical. yeah they tend to be they tend to be rather dead in the hand. Whereas the originals, they just sing to you. Um, and I have a, a small sword that I got for giving individual lessons. So I have a blue rubber point on the end of it, which comes off when I want to literally make a point. Um, but yeah, the small sword with its sort of triangular section blade, it is so... See, the thing I think everyone gets wrong about small swords is they're not fencing weapons. They're much closer to... It's much closer to a knife fight. It's very yeah. fast... And you're trying to shove a spike six inches into somebody's chest,
1: right? Yes,
0: yes. And and so it should be fought a lot closer than it's fenced at. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's there's something about picking up one of these that's just uh, I don't know. It, it unleashes the inner psychopath because <laughs> well, you, <laughs> so so you have you have um, historical originals too. I take it.
1: Yeah, well, but, but because um, I I don't use them so so i've got a couple of court swords um and things i've got um a really lovely um uh sort of early 19th century well i mean it could even be 1780s um it it's hard to tell they don't exactly date them um and, and and the thing with court swords is that there are distinct changes but they're over such a long period of time um and it's got a lovely white scabbard, and the cut steel is gorgeous. And it's a pure dress sword, um, but mm-hmm. the but the um, you know, so it's blunt, but the tip is like a needle. Yeah, it okay. really is. So,
0: but small swords, all all small swords have blunt edges. I mean, they 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 have no, they're not designed to have any cutting
1: capacity at all. So, oh, I thought that maybe towards the t- towards the end, you'd have a little bit of an edge going on, but it's always just no, it's, I mean, the end.
0: Okay, this, this one I'm, I'm holding here is absolutely a murder spike. Um, yes, and it's there's no question that it's it's made for use. It's it's mm. not particularly decorative at all. Uh, but yes, it has no edges to speak of. So so your your court sword with a sharp point. That's that's a sharp point for going through all that very fine tailoring and into mm. the meat underneath. And,
1: and it's just so thin, and it's so springy, and it's just wonderful. I really, really love it. Um, but but it is like a sewing needle um, yeah. in, in in terms of its sharpness. And I'm thinking, oh wow, this is actually a usable thing because that's the point of having the court sword as well. You are effectively yes, you may be wearing silks and all that jazz, but you are in effect, if push came to shove, you are there to protect the monarch. Um, you know, so so. But 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 also your honor, but. Um, you know, you you would have to, if it came to it, you have to unsheath that sword and use it. Yeah, although,
0: um, I mean, Godfrey famously described the broadsword, i.e. sabre, as the call of duty, and the small sword as the call of honour. So, yeah, I, I I'm not sure that the reason courtiers were allowed to wear swords had too much to do with protecting the monarch.
1: No, no, no. It, it it sort of comes from the notion of orders of chivalry and fashion and dress. But it is also that notion of um, <clears throat> if push came to shove, you were kind of expected to be able to use it. Um, yeah. And, and I think most people would be able to or at least draw it. But there would be officers and guards enough, so it's not too much of a problem. It's more a ceremonial expectation to use it than sure. truly expecting people to use it.
0: Yeah. And like how many how many owners of Ferraris can really drive?
1: Oh, exactly. Exactly. No, no, no. Completely. Completely. You know, um, and yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, how many owners of vastly expensive paintings um, actually understand it? Right. You know, it's the same sort of process.
0: Okay. So there are a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first of which is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on
1: yet? Oh, gosh, that's that's almost vaguely depressing. Um, I don't know. Best idea I haven't acted on yet. Well, I think one that I am actually acting on is the Brighton Ball Pavilion, because that's been something I've been wanting to do for years and years, um, and now they're trusting me to do it, so that's exciting. That is exciting. Gosh. Um, biggest idea that I've never acted upon. Well, I mean,
0: quite a lot of my guests... Because they're the sort of people that act on their ideas, which is how I came to notice them, which is how they ended up on the show. Quite a few people say, well, actually, I just act on all of my ideas, so I don't have one. So that's a perfectly legitimate I mean, there is a
1: bit of that. There is a bit of that.
0: Is there there a book in there somewhere? Like, you know,
1: Zach's guide to 18th Century tailing? I think there could be in the future, and it's something I may or may not be talking with some people about. But also, I still feel that I'm too much in the learning stage about what I do. Um, I I still feel that, yes, I've got knowledge, but I don't have enough to really pass it on just yet. Um, okay. So that's have, what I'm thinking. I have maybe... a
0: thought for you. Oh, yeah. I have a thought for you. Okay. Um, the, a book doesn't have to be the book, mm. Mm. right? And if there is, I don't know, an 80-page summary of interesting sewing techniques or or how to... Fit a pair of breeches or something, um, according to your current level of knowledge. That would be useful to someone who is trying to make their own, for example, Regency clothing. Mm. Then that would be a good thing to do for them. And then maybe in twenty years' time, when you've got ten of these things out and have learned much more and have updated them as they as let's say you come through some breakthrough about breeches in a couple of years' time after your breeches booklet has come out. Then you just update it, and let everyone know there's a second edition, and they will get excited to go off and buy that one as well. Um, and then in 20 years' time, you compile all of these things together, and you suddenly find that you have the definitive tome on
1: Regency Dress. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Something to think about. Oh. Cause, cause, cause cause like, gosh, I, where's the time? Where's <laughs> the time?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is that. But then, okay, you, you do also... you. You do a lot on YouTube, where you do like video tutorials and things of how you're making things.
1: Sure, sure, yeah, no, and 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 I'll be doing a lot more um, on YouTube because at the moment, like I've gone through periods where I just haven't done much, and it is a whole other job. The thing is, yeah. I'm busy making stuff the whole time. I can't always be editing, and because otherwise, I'm doing like several different jobs, and then there's this, the social this, media this side of I, things. It's some insane. of the YouTube
0: people I follow, um, yeah. I I do not understand how they can possibly. Have the time to do this incredibly cool technical thing they're doing—something about woodwork or watchmaking or whatever, whatever other one of my interests I'm, I'm watching them for—and um, then they have the time to produce this beautifully edited, beautiful video as well. And I'm like,
1: um, how? How do does this? So, so, so there seems to be um, a, a, a growing market, and I've been approached as well um, to get editors in to do it for you.
0: Sure.
1: Um, and I'm like, well, I could do that, but I'm not really making enough to really warrant that. And I still want it to have sort of my own flavour and stamp on it. Um,
0: yeah, and editors but, need to get paid and they're not cheap if they're any good.
1: Well, exactly. Well, I mean, actually, there, there's there's um, uh, it, it's possibly not as expensive as you might think um, because people do it via piecework and stuff. And the thing is, there's so many of them wanting to do things for YouTube as well. And YouTube ends up paying quite well if your videos do well. So it's an interesting... Well, it's an interesting, which then leads me onto a phrase that I have a bone of contention with: a double-edged sword. Well, oh God, yes, because because aren't they kind of if they have one edge, they have two edges?
0: Yes, and and even even a single-edged sword has a back edge, even though it's blunt, and you use it for like beating swords away. And
1: exactly, you know, it's exactly. Still plus, useful. Plus, plus, yes. plus, at the very top, generally with sabres and things, you know, the the, the the top sort of few inches on the other side is also sharp. So generally. it's like. Yeah, so it's like a double-edged sword. Oh, you mean a sword? Yeah, mean a sword. Is that what you mean? <laughs> and,
0: and 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 the back edge isn't bad for you. It's not like because a double-edged sword is like it's good, but it's also bad. But no, a double-edged sword is like good entirely. Yes. yes. It's, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like it's like that. Oh, it's, like, like, oh, well, it's one. a double-edged sword. Oh, like, you mean it's a sword? Yes. Or like, yeah. sl-
0: or like, sleep. He was sleeping like a baby, which means you mean up he, every he, few
1: hours. Up, yeah, up every sh-
0: few hours, screaming for milk and having shat his
1: pants. Like yeah yeah it's like oh yes <laughs> what a terrible sleep that was yes
0: yes all right so anyway so double edged sword YouTube editing
1: yeah 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 so so um it, it's something I need to do more of and I am getting a lot quicker than I was at it um but I just need to focus on it and basically I just need to build it into my my schedule um where I'm very much a bit sort of I'll go into the workshop I'll work on something and then if I get into the zone I'll be working on something until you know, too late at night. And then I'm yeah. like, oh, damn, I don't have this YouTube thing. But it's um, – it. Right, here's a thought. Yeah. Just a thought. Um, people
0: will pay significant amounts of money for mm. video tutorial courses. And it, it just because – I don't think information- I'm there yet. I, okay, I, I, but but I, just because I, the I, information I there is there available but- for free on YouTube doesn't mean people won't pay for it to be packaged in an organized way and delivered as a course.
1: True, true. I mean, that um, I, I have got a Patreon, um, so, so I'm sort of also a bit neglectful of that. Um, but, um, you know, I'll be posting more sort of behind-the-scenes things and little tidbits, I find, especially with this new project I'm doing um, for May, um, which is going to be quite exciting. Um, re- remaking a uniform, uh, which hasn't really been remade and people don't seem to remake it. Um, and it's interesting. And then working with some other people about stuff, you know, because I'm not sure how much I can say about these things. Um, uh, but it's all a lot of very cool things to look forward to. Okay. Which is fun.
0: So, I mean, just as someone who would be interested, um, I, I am not going to trawl through YouTube looking for solutions when I could have them prepackaged and sold to me as a complete package. Sure, sure. So, sure. so yeah. i I'm just, it's just a thought. And I make about half of my income from online courses and then most of the other half comes from books. So Ooh. I have a kind of, as as an ex-cabinet maker who understands the problem of being paid for each piece that you make, yes. I am very much in favor of generating passive streams of income passive or income, shall we yeah. say also um, scalable products, things that you can make once and sell many times, which you simply can't do with a waistcoat.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you can do it with shirts, but there are shirt tutorials out there. Um, but um, it'd be interesting. I mean, you could do it with um, with waistcoats in a way. Um, you know, sort of, sort of do it to some standard sizes.
0: Um, no, 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 no. What I mean is, you make one waistcoat and then you can sell that same waistcoat a thousand times. That no. that's that. You can't do that with a physical object. No, right? no, no, no. True, like, true. But true. with a book, you write it once and even if you sell 100 million of them you don't actually have to make another book at any point during that process that's a good point um yeah. so it's scalable i don't mean i don't mean copyable i mean scalable you produce it once mate and it can be reproduced through technological means you don't have to have any direct influence over over and over again now actually designs would work like that so if you have a pattern book for example
1: Yes, so that's true. You, yeah. you
0: design your pattern book for, for you, you design the pattern and then you can sell the patterns. That's one way of doing scalable income for
1: Yeah, well, the, 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 the thing is, you don't really use patterns in historical clothing. Um, you, you use drafting. Um, and, and it's this sort of modern fallacy where, oh, where'd you get your pattern for this? It's like, no, 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 it's not a pattern you buy, it's a pattern you have to draft. Um, and <laughs> part, and okay, part just... of it is from drafting, and then part of it is from the rock of the eye, which is really unhelpful as well. But Sorry, I just, am just... producing, I, I am actually producing a waistcoat pattern, okay. um, which is from an original waistcoat that I've got, and I'm scaling it up and down um, with then notes on how to fit it on yourself um, and that sort of thing. This is this has hit a lot of hurdles, um, but sure. hopefully it'll be something I'll be able to sort of put out in the next couple of months. Um, but um, or, or maybe slightly later, because I was meant to get it done for sort of Christmas time and then I had problems with the printers. And then it was the thing of, oh, well, actually, I need to now go back and tweak this for people above a certain chest size. So it's been a lot of, it's been more work than I really ever intended it or thought it would ever be.
0: (laughs) That Uh, is so often the case with anything to do with publishing.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly that. But could be worse.
0: Okay. So my last question, somebody gives you a million dollars or probably guineas in your case to spend improving historical martial arts, or historical tailoring worldwide, how would you spend it?
1: Oh, to start off with, it would be... Um, I think it would be making people fit things properly. Britches especially. Just make them tighter. Just make them tighter. Make them actually fit your legs. Um, okay, how, and, how would you do that? Oh, um, some form of martial law. Sumptuary <laughs> 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 laws. Yeah, 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 you just bring in sundry laws again. Uh, no, um, I, I, I suppose in the world of historical tailoring and whatnot, um, you're, you're combat, you're combating the notion of, um, you're dealing with modern men, effectively, who are used to the modern way of being, and you've got to go, no, take your mindset out of your modern caveman brain, and go to the, and go to the enlightened part of the enlightenment. Um, and, and actually realise that a lot of your quibbles about, colour, fit, things like that, that's all sort of born out of Victorian repression and nothing that was actually really a problem. Um, So go along and wear bright, embroidered yellow suits with pink flowers. It just shows you're a wealthy gentleman of taste. Um, You know, men seem to be terrified of colour um, and things like that, but I, I think it would be sort of, you know, making it less of a burden on people, having better access to people creating better things or having it made better. Okay. So some, some I don't way... know exactly what I would do. Maybe start like a foundation for research or something like that. You know, um, okay. let, let, let's look at and restore period pieces. Let's have a course going on historical tailoring where you don't have to worry about, Oh, Where's my other money coming from or anything? You can just solely focus on research um, and work on historical pieces like that. That would be amazing.
0: Okay. And maybe a public education campaign about how breeches ought to fit and how padded shoulders shouldn't be a thing.
1: Totally. Totally. Um, and, and also um, telling bits of history which just aren't taught in schools. Um, that's always quite interesting. And telling people about fashion history. And fashion history isn't just about clothes. It's about people. Fashion history is social history, um, and social history is the story of who we are. Um, And it's fascinating that history isn't looked at more in a fashion sense, because that really tells you a lot about people, especially historically, when they had to have everything specifically ordered and specifically made for them. So you have an idea of who someone could be by the clothes that they wore, rather than now, the choice is made for you by someone else. You just pick it from, um, from a rack. You you're given a lot of choice but really you're using someone else's um color palette you're using someone else's resources to dress yourself as opposed to going in um somewhere and going oh i like that fabric and i like this can we make this out of it people aren't used to having things people aren't used to being actually able to choose things. People are used to the illusion of choice.
0: Yeah. It, it's like the difference between being able to program and having to use other people's programming solutions to solve problems that you may encounter. Yeah. 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 And and like, I mean, I'm, I'm the same with, with wood and furniture. Like if I want a cabinet in my study, well, I could go online <clears throat> and find some shitty piece of MDF thing that would, more or less fit the space or i can make it just the way i like right and and you know make it to fit precisely the space and with exactly the depth of drawers and the kind of drawers and the kind of cupboards and all that Mm. it can just be exactly how i want it to be of course you know you must know this as a craftsman nothing ever turns out quite exactly the way you want it
1: uh, the, right. the, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there is always that whole thing of you can be very pleased with something, and go, "Wow, that's great," um, and you're like, "Oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like it because I don't like how that went." And and no, yeah, and this was a nightmare. <laughs> um, and, and it happens with each and everything. And I think that must still happen in modern tailoring and in and in even the highest of crafts. I think the only place it doesn't happen is probably the Rolls Royce factory. But, no, um, but I bet it does. I bet it does because I bet the thing it is, does.
0: the pretty much the definition of craftsmanship is dissatisfaction in the outcome, right? Oh, I like because that. Yeah. I mean, I have I have friends who are world class in making swords or shoes or whatever else, and they produce something that is a flawless masterpiece in every respect. And everyone <laughs> who cares about this particular kind of object looks at it and and. Uh, Pretty much genuflex in its presence. And they go, yeah, well, but it wasn't quite, and and this bit is like and, and it's like, you know, that it is that dissatisfaction in the outcome that allowed you to develop to the point where you could make this flawless thing of gorgeousness, right? But because you have that thing that allowed you to get that good that you could make stuff of that quality, you, all you can see is the flaws because as your skill develops, so does your ability to see mistakes.
1: That's true. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it's often the case where, where people with the smallest amount of information think they have, uh, the they're more experts in a field the more you know the, the <laughs> yeah. less you think you know we're just kind of what's possibly putting me off doing anything things. i'm like oh i don't know enough and people are going i had no idea that buttonholes looked like that you know um right. so sort of thing um but i think actually doing a whole youtube series and then sort of compiling it into a course or something um would would, would potentially be a good thing and um, yeah um... like you know this is how you Sew on a button. This is how you make one of these buttons. This is how you sew a buttonhole sort of thing. Um, right. To, to, we, just so people that are intimidated by the concept of going, oh my god, a suit, it's such a big thing. Okay, let's start small. Let's start with the basic stitches you need. You need um, a running back stitch. Um, I mean, pretty much you can put a whole outfit together nearly with just a form of running back stitch. Um, and honestly, the running button back button.
0: stitch is the only stitch I can do. But oh, when in, in my house, when my, when my children rip their clothes or whatever,
1: it's me that sews them up. Oh, fantastic. That's good. Um, so, yeah. See, and repair. Repair. That's something which people don't do anymore. But then again, yeah. things aren't invested enough um, or of a high enough quality, generally speaking, because they've been bought for cheap anyway, that they're not worth repairing. Right. So if it's going
0: to cost you 10 quid to get it, stitched up or five quid to buy a new one what do you do
1: exactly and 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 i think um so buy once buy well and don't buy anything that you wouldn't that you're not able to or wouldn't be able to repair as in if you buy something and it's like oh it's not good enough to repair then don't buy it
0: right yeah mean,
1: that's how i am
0: about furniture certainly exactly exactly um, and and swords too, <laughs> although when swords break, <laughs> they're normally not worth fixing.
1: <laughs> well, that's true. Well, um, you 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 do sometimes see um, swords from the past turned into daggers. Yeah, um, and, and and you see and things like
0: that, and you see forge welded repairs on a broken blade quite often. Yes, um, where the blade has snapped um, somewhere around the middle, and they just overlap it a bit and hammer it back together, and they go, go that'll do. do. Yeah, and it will. In absolutely not. It's just a few inches shorter than it was before.
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And and then you'll have some guy trying to sell it that, oh, it was specially made for a short guy. It's like, "Uh uh (laughs) uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure thing.
0: Yeah. No, no, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Zach. It's been lovely to meet you.
1: Not all. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zach. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my sword person's care package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for Sword People and find out what the Singaporeans are doing with Andural Flame of the West. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them I'd have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I also need to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my paradoxes of defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Marie Naservi. She is a neuroradiologist psychologist and historical martial artist sword mum to the noble science academy and the organizer of frau which is the only american women's event west of new york we discussed sports psychology creating a healthy club culture and even a little bit about ai make sure you don't miss it you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from and while you're there please do rate the show and if you have an extra minute leave a review it really helps Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.